When a cop stops you, okay, I swear to God it works just for women. If you get a ticket or you're speeding, just get out of the car. Go with me on this. Put your hands here and say any three letters. So last time I was stopped, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I've had a BLT. And they go, keep driving, because they don't want to know. They don't want to know what's coming out of a woman. So they just go on. Oh, I'm so I've got a UFO going on down here. Welcome to the Southbank Centre podcast. Come with us on a journey to explore where arts and culture meet the gender agenda, politics, identity and economics, where we'll bring you discussion and debate from this year's WOW, Women of the World 2018 Festival. In this podcast, Ruby Wax talks about her book, How to Be Human, The Manual, written with insights from a monk and a neuroscientist. It's a new and very original take on mindfulness. I should let you all know that um, Ruby, Ruby is one of my really close women friends. She's still working on me on the whole business of mindfulness. Um, but tonight, or today, we're not talking about specifically mind, mindfulness. Her new book is utterly fabulous, and I really want to say that. It's really a handbook for living, and I'm going to give it to all of my now-grown children so that they can take it with them into their existences. It's really wonderful, Ruby. I mean, to some extent, and, and of course I'm jealous of them, but you've got two other very best friends, a monk and a neuroscientist. Oh, yeah and I can't compete with them. And the monk and the neuroscientist, tell us a well, little the bit. Well, the reason, uh, there was a reason I, I chose them. Uh -huh. People say, where'd you meet them? And I always say, on Tinder. In but, Tinder, yeah. yes. I was looking for a monk and a neuroscientist. There was a cue, it was like X Factor. Cues yeah. around the block. Because I wanted somebody who was kind of an expert on how we think, on the mind, because I never allow him to say the B word, Buddhism. I slap him uh -huh. and say, and he goes, 2,000 years of wisdom, bitch, you know, look at the hand. But um, he's got a great sense of humor. And the other is Ash, who's an American, a very highly qualified, brilliant man, who is a really highly regarded neuroscientist in the United States. Well, he think, knows the meat, you know, mm -hmm. he understands that. So when you say, you know, you're talking about relationships, or you're talking about why we choose the people we choose, it's really interesting to say, well, this is where it might be in the brain. If I can't see it or I can't smell it, I don't buy it. I really have to know the reality of it. I didn't want to write a New Age book where we're waving crystals. I really like to say, this is the science of it. And so these guys contribute that, and then I try to make it funny. <laughs> That's my job. She, she's, she's not telling the absolute truth. The real truth about uh, Ruby is that she's one of the cleverest women that I know. And uh, she's you know, nodding, yeah. We all and, have uh, these... And she, and she really is as smart as hell. And she's drawn to smart people. But she does have a voice in her head, which was her mother's voice, which is still telling her that you know, she's having to prove Don't herself. Don't you have that voice in your head? My mother's in there Everybody as well. Everybody has a voice to, in their head. We probably all have our mother in there. Probably the same theme songs are going on in yeah, your head. Yeah. I'm a fraud everybody's going to catch me. Yeah. Okay, we should wear badges to say this is my theme song. Well, my, feel so but, my, but my mother's thing was different from yours. My mother's thing was somebody stopped my mother and said, oh, Mrs. Kennedy, how does your daughter manage to do all the things she does? I saw in the papers how busy she is and so on. And my mother said, yeah, but you haven't seen her skirting boards. You know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, so it's never good enough. I failed the test on housekeeping, you see. That was the big one for me. Your mother wasn't, well, your mother was a big housekeeper, but she wasn't quite. Well, I didn't know it wasn't normal to clean the ceiling with a Q-tip for a long time. <laughs> but 
in your book, I mean, you really take us on a journey because you start with evolution about, in a way, what starts that business of the voices in the head before we get to our mothers. There is the business of a sort of hunger and competitive thing. I, I thought that was only guys. You think that you think it starts early in women as well? Well, just, just to talk about, uh, you know, evolution, I always thought it made us better and better, and so this is homo perfectus now. But it turns out it only cares about your survival. It really doesn't give a shit about your happiness. The reason we got stood on all twos was so we could wear Manalo <laughs> Blahniks, what are those? High heel shoes. There was yes. a reason why everything happened, but it was only so that we could pass the egg. It really didn't care about the individual. That's a revelation. And when you feel, okay, I feel this envy, I feel this shame, I feel these, you're haunted by these inner demons, they were placed there because it worked hundreds of thousands of years ago. We were supposed to feel competitive, otherwise nobody would have stood on two legs, you know. All of this was in place, but we live in a world now where technologically we were geniuses, but emotionally we never grew up. So we really can't keep up with this world that we've created. It almost started in the architectural, agricultural, because we started to make more and more land and we had ways of, of preserving what we grew, but socially we couldn't keep up with it. We really are built to be small tribes. That's why we're kind of lost and lonely now is because who's our tribe? Now I'm looking at you know somebody in Russia who's got a Pulitzer Prize, there is no limit to where we're comparing ourselves to and that drives us to distraction. But in groups of 50 to 150, we were perfect because <laughs> we all knew each other. We shared the same genes usually. So the bad news was your kid had webbed feet and half a head, but, <laughs> but we did all get along. <laughs> we did, we did right. If somebody got sick, you gave them a chiseled get well card, you know, in stone. <laughs> well, can I just say one thing? Mm -hmm. Is that a lot of times why this helped and why I put this in the book is to forgive ourselves. You know, that it is the human condition. It's not your condition. So it really made me feel better to know that this equipment was put there. It's nothing personal for a reason. And that under all of our hoods, we sort of sh share the same emotions and thoughts. I mean, we all have five fingers. So, of course, the way we think is pretty similar, too. And that really gives me relief that part of my symptoms were I always feel, felt such shame. I always felt so freakish. So to understand that a lot of this is handed down from the past makes me feel a lot of relief. I wrote this book to make me feel better. And it, but, but I promise you, it, make, it makes you feel better too. You move on to talking about that business of thoughts, that, you know, how to deal with the ones that really that, that really get to us, that really persecute that us. That we're Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. Yeah. Well, again, when you think it's just you that's going mad, out of every something like five thoughts, four have to be negative because it's a throwback. You know, when we were back, back in the bush, you know, when we had the mono brow before we had pedicures, dragging our knuckles on the ground, we were always, like all animals, looking around over our shoulder. You had to do it to survive. If you were whistling a happy tune, you'd be <laughs> eaten by the next predator. So when we got language, it sort of translated these feelings of what's behind me, watch out for the next guy. And again, in this agitated culture, we're really paranoid. Now, you know, nobody gave me a like because I sent them a photo of my food, you know, that I had for lunch. You know, this person is rejecting me. It's just exasperated. Mm -hmm. But the negative thoughts were meant to help you. 
thoughts are one percent of what's going on in your mind, so you don't have to take them that seriously. Yeah. I mean, ninety-nine percent of you is busy, you know, making sure that your food is going through your digestive tract, you're growing fingernails, each cell has to divide into another cell. If you had to think about that, you'd never be able to go shopping. So the one percent is just giving you information. Don't walk into the wall, you know, it, memory has to work, otherwise you get up every morning wondering, am I a lesbian or am I a clown? You know. You're made to have a kind of reality, but it's not who you are. You're much bigger than your thoughts. But disciplining those thoughts and, and knowing where they come from and they're just complicating life, how good are you at sort of now kind of packaging them up and pulling the flush on them? Otherwise, we'd never progress. We wouldn't, you know, you need that nagging voice to get you to hit that deadline. We wouldn't have evolved this far, and we all you know, survive the evolutionary hunger games, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. Now, the negative thought can often be a, a propelling well, thing. Well, stress is really good too, but it's stress about stress. It's our thinking that's now backfiring. You know, the, that's what's burning us out now. We're sabotaging ourselves with our own thinking. Because, again, we're competing with the world. Where's your family? Where's your community? Where's your thing? So how much love do you need? There's, there's no boundaries anymore. But you were saying about how do I deal with it. Yeah. The book isn't about mindfulness, okay? Because no, it's no, not I know. for everybody. We, we'll go to your other ones because they're also very good for dealing with that. But, but I want to, you're, you're really digging into the deeper stuff in this one, but also showing us simple ways of handling that. You have had a bad time with bad things you know, the bad stuff, telling you that you're, you're not good enough and stuff. Everybody, there isn't a person in the audience who doesn't have times when those thoughts become so dominant that actually they can be crippling rather than, than well, actually motivating. You know, I was so interested of dealing with these, this, and of course when you have depression, it's not one critical voice. I would say it's like 100,000, like if the devil had Tourette's, that's <laughs> what it would sound like. So I wanted to figure out a way I could deal with that, and I did research it, and I did look in scientific things, because I ain't going to a weekend workshop on how to heal your inner elf, you know, or, sorry to say, my star sign. I know I'm an Aries, but, you know, it's 2018, science has moved on uh -huh. a little bit. I did research it, and it turned out that mindfulness, which to me sounds way too vegetarian, and cognitive therapy had the best results as far as being able to distance yourself a little from your thoughts. You still need them, but you don't need the garbage. It's sort of like picking out the stuff you need and then that list that makes you crazy. I don't have to buy the cat food at four o'clock in the morning. I do need to shop for those pair of shoes, but you know, I can shut the computer down at six. I mean, it's almost like there's an observer. There's somebody watching the thoughts. That doesn't mean all the time, it just means if you sort of observe them, you sort of see that you're falling into your habits. Like when I get that I'm not good enough or my mother was right, I'm an idiot. I sort of now see them as CDs that are habits that I were implanted. And so I go, oh yeah, that's CD number 45. Oh yeah, income. I even have it now, like you're looking at me like I'm not making sense, which I might not be. <laughs> so again, you sort of learn to watch them a little bit. And once you observe, you can break the habits. The thoughts never go away. They're only gone when you're dead. That's a mm. clue that you've died. Okay. No <laughs> thoughts. But it's more like rather than them nagging you and you buying into them, then you sort of listen to them a little like on a radio in another room. So it, it, you get a different relationship with your thoughts. Probably mindfulness is going to be in the dark ages in a minute because I'm doing another program. They'll have chips you can put in your head or Fitbits that tell you your cortisol is going too high. The thoughts are going and you'll have ways of bringing it down. 
I, I'm sure that, you know, it's all about cortisol being pumped into your head. When the thoughts are too rampant, that means you're in the full red mist and we should be able to read that. Otherwise, kids burn out when they're taking exams and you fuck up at work when you're in that zone. So there have to be ways of recognizing. It's all about being aware and then do something about it. How does it link to your emotions, busyness, and, and learning ways of dealing with that? How, what about the way in which it relates to our emotional emotions and ultimately then to our relationships? Well, the emotions are thoughts with bells on. <laughs> you know, again, we had emotions before we had thoughts. So that's, you know, like a weasel smells the air and an octopus puts out one of his tentacles to see if there's danger. You know, we think it. We feel it first. The emotions come to, I love this stuff, 200 milliseconds before the thought. Because if you had to sit around and go, uh-oh, I'm about to be eaten, you're eaten. So you feel it and you run. The thoughts come much later. So, so many decisions are made. And the other thing is our language, our vocabulary is so limited that a lot of times we're not being accurate. We have 50,000 feelings. And so the thoughts are just the tip of the iceberg because I really can't tell when I, the difference, I swear to God, when I have really bad indigestion and the runs and when I'm in love. If I really analyze it, like when I met Ed, I didn't know if this was the real thing or I had just eaten a bad pickle. I can't tell. You know, wind and worry feel the same to me, so I don't know whether to call the police or go to the toilet. We really, you know, you really can't take the emotions seriously. And if you don't interpret them and go, oh, it's because she did that or he's bullying me, if you really start to just... Feel where the emotion is, like you would feel if you're if you banged your knee. Then they don't stick around. The thing that's really interesting is that we aren't a set thing. It's more like winds blasting through, and our brain changes every second unless we hold on. And so you'll realize if you're really sad, two minutes later the new clouds come in. It just if you let it go, it just drifts through. It's what makes us nuts is the rumination. Why do I feel this way? Because usually, my, you know, I'm upset. I must feel this way because everybody hates me. Who didn't call me back? I want to go to that party, and I hate everybody at the party, but I'm going to go to the party. It's, we become at the mercy of this kind of basic instinct to fit in. Okay. And you should just go, that's okay, Ruby. You know, it's evolution's fault. It's not your fault. The next time you've got diarrhea, ask yourself whether it was really diarrhea Don't send or out a Valentine's Day card. Yeah. Save your money. Just get something to stop the diarrhea. <laughs> okay. But Can you, I just read my little bit? Because oh, I was interested in what thoughts are. So the neuroscientists, because I, I thought, well, what, what are they made of? Where are they in the brain? Because knowledge is power. If you really understand how it's made and why it was made that way. It's sort of, you know, again, it's a relief. So I asked the neuroscientist, explain to me about thoughts, so he did, and then I translated it, because I don't understand a fucking word he's talking about, <laughs> but he's smart. So this, he told me what thoughts are, and then I interpret it this way. So shall I read it? Yeah. Okay, so to help you with this concept about what thoughts are, picture your thoughts being manufactured by a single queen bee sitting in her larva in your brain. For those of you who are new to neuroscientists, there's not an actual bee in your brain. <laughs> Around her are waiter, room service, maid, construction worker, valet, parking, and plumber bees. Okay, now imagine that in your brain there are also bees in charge of your actions and thoughts. Some of them are watching films of coffee in your visual department. Others are manufacturing the smell of coffee in your smell department. And the movement bees are manipulating your feet toward a Starbucks. 
The queen thinks she wants coffee, but she's deluded. It's all the bees working in their separate departments, sending in their votes, which motivate her to go for the latte. There is no one bee that makes the decision. It's whichever department buzzes the loudest. So when you think I'll have a dry, skinny, double cappuccino, ginger, and pumpkin blend picked in Nicaragua by eco-friendly slaves, you'll get and drink the coffee while some bees are already putting together plans for a chocolate muffin. <laughs> so so you, you know what I mean? A lot of things that come to your mind were already decided a long time ago. This is the gift of this book, I have to tell you, is that it's a way into a difficult subject in the most accessible and wonderful way. I have to tell you that one of the bits that I love is the bit dealing with relationships. Oh, yeah. Would you like to have a little go at some of that? There is a bit, she takes us through different ages oh, of, sure. of, you know, the, the kind of things that are presenting themselves to us in our relationships. And dear Ed, her husband. The one uh, I got confused the one with, with, only, with the bad pickle. The great man. Uh, he does figure in this, I'm sure he... You know, anyway, but I love the bit which is where she gives advice to lots of people at different ages. Well, I want to read the bit which, which reaches my age group, but we'll you start you, earlier. Yeah, we blame our partner on why we lose our mojo, but you're supposed to lose your mojo. Um, you know, at a certain age, if you did try to recreate the 20s, you would never walk again, you know. So if you understand hormonally what naturally happens, it's not, you can still make a decision to override, but just understand there are certain things that happen in certain ages. You know, we all know about puberty. You know, the pimples are there for a reason and nothing is a surprise because everybody tells you about it. But the rest of the stuff, the other stages nobody ever mentions. <laughs> Go on, so give us a I bit. Do a little bit? Okay. One thing that helps you, uh, choosing a partner, to be aware of where you are in your life and to imagine how that might change. There are certain set points in where your interiors and exteriors have a rehaul. Many of us don't want to know this because we don't like to notice change. But just like puberty, which is undeniable, we have other extreme biological tectonic shifts throughout our lives. I'm here to tell you what they are before they take you by surprise. It may sound cold, but all of this, all of this is to help you. No one ever tells you about these changes, so I'm going to, somebody had to tell you. All right, from 18 to 25 years old, for both men and women, follow your hormones during these years. Have as much sex as you can, but don't make any commitments because right now your biology is in the sex driver's seat while your mind is out of town. <laughs> 25 to 30 year olds, for women, for women, you have five years where you can guilt-free build a career or travel. After 30, you have children and you'll always feel guilty. Whether you choose to stay home with the baby, giving up your career, or go to work and leave the baby, it's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> 30 to 45, it's almost impossible at this point to picture that someday something called menopause will fly into your window. For men, it's penile dysfunction. <laughs> if you're in your early 30s, forget I said these things and just have a great time laughing, dancing, having sex in lit rooms. <laughs> By 45, for women, if you were thinking of having kids, think again. Well, maybe don't think because chances are you're low on eggs. Now you should start to think about what a great life is waiting for you without children. You'll be free to do what you want, when you want, and not have to think about someone else all the time. The mistake people make at this age is to go get a cat or dog. <laughs> <laughs> then they're slaves to their pets and can't go out for fear that the pet will have a heart attack in their absence. <laughs> just do a few more. 45 to 50, for men and women, if you're not married at this stage and want to be, I suggest going on the last minute dot dating site or just find anyone with a pulse and throw a ring on it. 
the good news is a culling might have happened where one of your married friend's partners has died. <laughs> so now is the time to swoop in there and get the living one. <laughs> it's a second chance time for old newlyweds. For 50 to 65? Oh, go on, you do that. Should go I on. do it or you? Hilarious. Okay. For men and women, if you're married and have been for a long time, you'll notice that the stories are on a loop. You've heard it all before. You will deliver the punchline of jokes before he, she does. Inevitably, you've both run out of material. <laughs> for women, at this point, if you're still with the husband, you can stop shaving your legs and start gaining weight without fear. <laughs> Unless you're with an alpha, and then I'd say keep shaving and throw in a facelift. <laughs> if you've married an alpha at this stage, he's either long gone or going tomorrow, so don't make plans for dinner. <laughs> if you're with a nice guy, he won't notice or mind that you're turning into a fat carpet. <laughs> and then the last one. The last one is hilarious. 65 to 99 years old. I have no idea. I assume that if you're with a nice guy, you don't even have to sleep in the same room, eat in the same room, or even breathe in the same room. <laughs> when you get seriously old, you won't even know he's there. <laughs> if you are still in love by this age, still exchanging lar large amounts of oxytocin, you've won the jackpot. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to know that there is a chapter on sex, but it's very thin. In fact, there are a whole lot of empty pages. You're shy about sex, Ruby. No, no, I... Tell the truth, you are shy about sex. I mean, I like talking about it. You've, Eve Ensler said, would I do the vagina monologues once? Why yeah. didn't I do it? And I said, I can say vagina, I just can't say my. <laughs> but the sex thing is, I asked Tukton, I said, when was the last time you had sex? And he says, 25 years ago. So I leave four empty pages and right at the end, well, that about covers it. You then go on to talk about the whole business of children and uh, the business of bringing up kids. Again, the important thing is, is not to pass your, lug, your garbage on to them. You know, mm. so many women you know, are whispering Mandarin at four o'clock in the morning because they don't want the kids to be the failures they feel they were. You yeah, know, my yeah, mother yeah. did. So under, you know, again, if you're aware of yourself and your thoughts, don't give yourself a hard time because it only exasperates it. That's the other thing. If you get out the whip, you know, and say stop smoking, believe me, you're gonna take 10 more. I want you to know that she's got three kids and they're the most well-balanced, amazing I, kids. I married my husband first for length. He, He's very he, tall. He had long legs. Because I came, I always say, from short immigrants that used to scuttle <laughs> yes. across borders I'm with our pianos on our backs. Yeah. So I married him for that. And also, he came from a, an army background. You know, those people who love being in the a, trenches. A, a sort of colonial colonel, that sort of thing. So when I married him, I did it on purpose. I mean, I, again, I had wind. And I said to him, we had like four feet to get to the registry. You know, it wasn't <laughs> a big marriage. But as we were doing those four steps, I told him, A, how old I really was. <laughs> and then B, that I was married twice before, and C, that I had mental illness. But it was too late to bolt, so. <laughs> I married him on purpose because I knew that the waxes had only produced insanity. You know, a long line, probably the cave dwellers. Back then they went, they're still living. But, um, so I thought, let's stop this line, and I did marry him. He had the maternal instincts that I don't have. Yeah, and he was... He, he didn't breastfeed. I drew the line there. But, <laughs> but he's a very even 
even He's very well-balanced person. The yeah, trick yeah. is to get the female. So, so what's the advice to all these women folk of the right age out there? What, who should they Which look age? for in their partnering if they're, if they're heterosexual? Always get the cis. nice guy. I mean, at my age, you know, I wish I had, you know, the full being knocked against the elevator door. You know, you see it in movies and go, I never wanted it that much. <laughs> but... Um, by this age, this other chemical, and it is all hormones, comes on, which is called oxytocin. I mean, they should bottle it. It's more compassionate. It's a bonding drug that we all have. You ha mothers have it automatically with their kids, and without it, the kid's brain doesn't grow. You actually need that hormonal interchange, and that's interesting. You can't get it over a screen. But at this point, he's my best friend, and you sort of think, it's supposed to be this way, while other people, you know, I didn't demand too much. You'll never find everything in one person. We actually need about, I've counted it, 475 different men if they're going to fulfill everything we need. So the fact that Ed is tall and he can change the light bulbs and he's really funny, that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and he's kindness. Yeah, and he's kind. He's, kind. Yeah. he's yeah. wonderful. But I didn't marry him because, you know, I was flattened. A lot of times, there's actually research in there that women choose a different type of man when they're ovulating than when they're not ovulating. A lot of times when they're ovulating, they will go for the more aggressive, you know, the symmetrical, the, the more alpha male, because unfortunately, back in those days, we associated that the head of the tribe with an offspring that could have a better immune system. Now that's fucking nuts, but it's what made us survive. So again, awareness is everything. So never marry somebody when you're ovulating. <laughs> Move Take away. Take your temperature Move all the time. Move away from the building. I want to talk to you about addictions, going oh. from the highs to the lows. I mean, but, but um, because you've got a chapter on this whole business, and it's not yes, the addictions that we kind of you know we hear reported on in, in in the papers all the time. But you're also talking about newer addictions, the business of constantly being on social media and all of that. Mm. Give us a riff on that. <laughs> Go on. Well, in the 60s, the addictions were cigarettes and, you know, alcohol and whatever. And now, in the, wherever we are, again, you're more addicted to your thoughts of shopping, of gambling, of eating, of whatever. They're more habits than they are addictions. But part of the problem is there are guys that used to be um, called the hidden persuaders in the 60s, and they knew how to make you buy a wider detergent, even all the detergents are the same. But now they're geniuses who work at Google and these ad men, and they know how to tickle your, um, your addiction bone. They know exactly what you're addicted to. They know how much to hold it back so that they can get your craving and then bump it up again. And they do it in shops with colors and smells and uh, where they put the display. So we are continuously, it's almost, again, not your fault. There are these, you know, uh, things that motivate you to want more and more, you know. And because the shops never shut, you know, at least when they shut at 6 o'clock, you could stop with the shoes if it's open all night, and then you can go to your bed and keep ordering more. I know this because I have to, there's like an air hole to get through my house through the shoes. <laughs> but we're, we're natural born addicts, and unless we use another part of our brain that's watching, and not with a whip saying, you, you asshole, you bought it again, just calmly, calmly going, this is a natural proclivity is to be addicted. You know, that's what made us migrate. That's what makes us achieve. But we're overachieving now, and to understand that's what's burning our brains out. The addiction to wanting what the next guy has, that never happened before. To comparing yourself, 
again, all these things, envy was really good and shame was even good because if you felt you were letting down the tribe, you'd work harder. But now the shame is I'm not a size six. You know, I, I don't have a re- you know, an attractive husband. The shame is misplaced again. Everything was for a reason, even addiction. But now we're being manipulated. You have a great chapter looking at the future. And I, and I, well, the future's here now. Every but I mean, I mean, some of this stuff that's coming down the pike very fast, you know, technology and so on, where everything's done with algorithms, and, but also whether there are chips that you're talking, you know, where you're going to be able to put it into your But into every, your we are already cybergs. You know, that's already happened. I mean, some of these teeth aren't mine, and I got screws in my bunions. So, you know, and people I wasn't going to talk about your bunions, honestly. I was like not going to go there. I'd like to show you my bunions because <laughs> they've gone very wrong. But um, a lot of us, and it's, we're always lured in because it'll cure you, you know, when you have a heart stint uh-huh. and when you have, you know, enhancements. Mm-hmm. But now the enhancements, again, you know, for a minute, it'll save your life. In the next minute, you'll be chasing your tail again. You know, it'll make you faster, it'll make you smarter, you'll be able to choose your kids in a petri dish. So everything that works for us works against. So who's gonna draw the line? I mean, that's again, when we're in a jar, just a floating head, once in a while you're sending out an avatar of having sex with a lobster, you better know what bit of you is human. Because, you know, again, which part of you is the human bit, has the compassion? because slowly it's being weaned away. So again, we have to learn to, when we evolve the next time, it's gonna be through consciousness. I don't mean in a spooky way, I mean using the equipment we have on purpose. And so we upgrade our minds as much as we've upgraded our iPhones. That's the mission, because the future is coming. Forget about it, you've got, you should see what's, what's on the horizon. But individually, you can start to learn to decide, I need this, I don't need this. I get caught in my addiction, and then I forgive myself as long as I didn't hurt anybody. But it, but it does mean that we all have to be very clear that we are our own ethicists. You know, there's a way in which we have to be making calls, judgment calls, all the time on what we are opening ourselves up to and, and, uh, and to be making ourselves alert to the consequences that there can be. Well, and then with your kids, again, when you're fearful, when we go into the over drive in cortisol, you don't think clearly. So if you send fear to your kids, (laughs) they won't think clearly either. Your job is to, you know, lower, find ways, I don't know if it's mindfulness or, Mm. you know, a thousand different, get your fucking cortisol down because otherwise you hand it on to your kid. And if you can manage to cool yourself, we work like neural Wi-Fi, I always like that expression, it goes to your kids, to their friends, to the neighborhood, to the planet, that's politically responsible. Fix yourself and then go worry about the world because mm. we're all running away with ourselves. The journey on the book is really interesting, but you end with forgiveness, and I'd like you to just to talk about that. It's like, it's like, you know, that conversation that there was in, in, in the great sort of Cahill Gibran conversations. Tell me about, tell me about children. Speak to me of marriage. Speak to me of forgiveness. Listen, I know fuck all. It's just I had to write a book and the deadline was coming up. No, you didn't. <laughs> Tell the truth. No, it's, I mean, you, you, you've, you've been on a journey yourself about learning to forgive yourself. Well, I, I wrote the book for, you know, for me, and if other people, I have a lot of questions that you do when you're 18, you want to know this stuff, and then you get distracted by this thing called life, you know, mm. so I want to go back to the source. And now with science, they know, but I always had the last chapter was called forgiveness, and I thought, well, we're never getting there because that's not my remit, you know? I'm, I'm, my remit is I'm really good at revenge. Rage is my drug of choice. 
again, it's that reptilian thing. It was, a, we needed it, but put it down now, and it's very addictive. It's much more, you, nobody gets addicted to kale, right? <laughs> so I was, uh, the last chapter was always forgiveness, and I thought, well, what, what am I gonna write here? Coincidentally, the, that show, Who Do You Think You Are, got in touch with me a year before that chapter, and they come over to your house, and my mom, who was insane, and she <laughs> left a suitcase up in the attic, and I didn't even know we had an attic. That was just a door, and she said, never go up there, and our house was scary, so I didn't. But when she went into a, she, I think she died, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure she did. She did, I tell you, she okay, did. she did. She then did. I went up the stairs and I found this kind of Anne Frank suitcase and I opened it up and there were hundreds of photos and letters in German, but I couldn't read it. So I gave it to the people at Who Do You Think You Are? And a year later, while I was writing, about to write Forgiveness, they said, now we're going to do you. Because they turn a lot of people down if you're not interesting. You audition with your life. That is the worst rejection possible. Can you believe it? We were, we were full of anxiety that she might be turned yeah. down. But no, she was no, actually said, incredibly interesting. So before I wrote that chapter, but when I had to, they take me to Vienna. I didn't know where I was going. Everything is a surprise. And this stuff is revealed gradually. Like my, where do I even start? My dad, the genealogist said, he got out of Austria, it was one in a million chances. He took a plane out of Vienna to Berlin, to Belgium. Nobody took an airplane, it cost 2,000 pounds. My dad was poor, so how the fuck did he do that? And then he got to Belgium and he stowed away on a ship going to America. So first of all, how did he get on? And second of all, how did he get off? So I thought, well, that's chutzpah beyond. And so I understand I have this drive to always survive. Even in a queue, I have to get to the front. The problem was is that when he got off the ship, he spent the rest of his life furious as if the Nazis were still chasing him. And I thought, do I want to spend the rest of my life, you know, with this much rage? Yeah, it was good for survival, except I don't want to carry that hot coal. And the same with my mom. All she did was scream. She was a terrorist. And then suddenly they show me this babe. She was the most beautiful woman in Vienna. She was really highly educated. Mm. She spoke 12 languages, and she had a job. She was an economist. And at 21, she has to leave this whipped cream paradise and go to America, which she always thought was savages. Mm -hmm. She used to go up to my relatives and go, as if they were Indians. <laughs> so um, all I keep saying is, if she had told me what happened to her, I would have forgiven her, you know, 30 years ago. But they never talked about it. And then, of course, the ultimate gift was they kept saying, here's your great aunt. I didn't know I had any relatives. So I, they said, what do you think was her story? And I, I kept going, was she an actress? Because I was hoping there'd be a great actress. And they go, no, she was in an insane asylum. She was in an insane asylum. I said, well, maybe she was an actress part-time. <laughs> no, she was in there 30 years. And then they showed me my great-great-aunt, and they said, what do you think happened to her? And I went, an actress. <laughs> and I said, no, she was in another insane asylum. So I come from a long line. And then the ultimate thing was they showed me where Olga was buried, the one who was in the insane asylum. And when they took me to the graveyard, there was no grave because she would, either my parents or my relatives were so ashamed, it was just a plot of dirt, or probably because they were ashamed. So my forgiveness thing was I bought her a big motherfucker um, gravestone that said, fuck you to everybody else and how proud I was of these women. So in a way, that's as close to forgiveness as I got. So it was just perfect for the last chapter. <laughs> I have a picture. But... 
But it is, there is a lesson in life, which I think that as one gets older, is that holding on to those things, in yeah. fact, is self-destructive. Again, we need the anger because that's our fight and flight. But when you hold on and you hold on, you know, and you start to say, you know what that guy did to me? And then you find more friends so you can repeat it. Again, it's creating, you're embedding that anger and that anger becomes a habit. Boy, do I know that. I used to scan the room for victims. And then I eventually, like with traffic wardens, I used to look for them because I didn't want my friends to know how nuts I was. And I'd say, come here a minute, buddy. And I'd take them around the corner and then give them hell. Mm. You know, just to get out, I'd, tr I'd turn into that full alien. And so the next day I'd have a hangover because it's just like a drug. So now I have a whole new way of dealing with traffic wardens. Do you want to know my new way? Go on. Okay, this is enlightened, I think. When a cop stops you, okay, I swear to God it works just for women. If you get a ticket or you're speeding, just get out of the car. Go with me on this. Put your hands here and say any three letters. So last time I was stopped, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I've had a BLT. And they go, keep driving, because they don't want to know. They don't want to know what's coming out of a woman. So they just go on. Oh, I'm so I've got a UFO going on down here. So that's my new way. I pass my wisdom. Use it. 100% success rate. Now you know. Now you know. Um, uh, there is a thing that we, we learn, which is that there are some people in one's lives, you know, people sometimes that become friends, but then you know that, that somehow they bring a darkness into your life and they, be, and they can be, they, you know that there's a negativity. It may not be how they relate to other people, but in their relationship with you, it can be really negative and it gives you all those bad feelings. And I've learned with life that if there are people who do that for me, I try to keep them at, at a distance. But there are ways in which you can manage things that you know create those areas where you are a lesser being because of the darkness that it introduces into your own thought systems. Do you ever do that? You've advised me to do oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure, I have a shit list, you know, yeah. but again, a little knowledge about how the human mind works. Most of the time when we look at somebody, we assess who they are by who they remind us of. So sometimes if I see a really cute blonde, I hate her guts because when I was in high school, I was left out by those people. Mm -hmm. So you really have to pull the reins again. The brain is an interesting thing. There's the primitive brain, and then there's a, the latest brain in town, which gives us decision-making and awareness and rehearsing before we react. And so if you just pause it a second, you might remember that, oh, yeah, she reminds me of that, and then make a new assessment. Because chances are you're usually wrong. Yeah, wrong, yeah. You know, I did that with one guy. I thought he was an idiot. He was interviewing me. And if you treat somebody like an idiot, believe me, the ball comes right back. You know, you get that... An yeah. antler situation where you lock antlers and neither of you are making sense because we go primitive again. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to embrace our inner ape. We are partly savage and partly genius. But I was giving him hell and I was on the radio. I thought, just a, you know, idiot. So I said, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom, which is interesting to do on live on radio. radio. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and I Did got... Did you take the microphone off? No, I took it with me. You yeah. know. So I just, you know, tried to get down that red mist, you know, I tried to get it down. I went back in, and it was, I was more in my right mind. And then gradually, it just comes out that he was on TED Talks, and he's a mathematical genius. And I was the idiot. So I nailed him. You know, we nail people, and then we are our worst enemy. We get trapped. And then you have a relationship 
that's skewed. And I think it is a really important thing to learn. I have to tell you, I, didn't, I was not one of those women that was attracted to really guys that were going to be mean. You were a bit like that. Well, because my dad was so mean. Yeah, but I wasn't. I had a very nice father. Yeah, but you I had was, a good upbringing. I, I, and, I, and I went looking for nice guys always. So the men that I had relationships with were all kind of, by and large, nice men. I wasn't to say that they all lasted by any means, but you know, but 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 I kind of avoided the the, the dark, difficult, the guy that was going to make life hell. But a lot of us, you know, again, you're in the habit. I only knew an abusive man, uh -huh. so you get uh, your brain again makes an imprint. I look for an image of daddy, you yeah. know, which was a terrorist, and then again, you start to recognize the pattern. So I was seeing a shrink at the time, and I was working with Ed, and I said, "There's this guy. I'm really not that interested." And she said, well, what's he got that you don't have? And I said, he's got heat. And she said, marry him. <laughs> so I proposed. I didn't even like him that much, but, you know. But he made great, years later. Yeah, he made great yeah. kids. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. But uh, I want you all to join me in saying, Ruby. Oh, and to her. You're a phenomenon. And to you her. really are. To hear more from WOW 2018, check out the Southbank Centre SoundCloud and join the conversation on Twitter with hashtag WOWLDN.